Well, good morning. If you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 19. I'm going to pick it up in verse 28. I'm posting this sermon late this week because when I preached on Sunday, I misspoke. I said one word wrong. I failed to put a prefix on it, and that changed the entire meaning of the point I was trying to make. So uh, the congregation pointed that out to me, so I couldn't post it until I got it right. As Scripture says in Proverbs 25:11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. And indeed, if you misspeak, by golly, you can change the meaning of the whole thing, which is what it did. So we'll pick it up this morning in John chapter 19, verse 38, and it'll be 20, verse 1 through 18. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred-pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascended unto my father 
and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And thus is the reading of God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now as we once again turn to thy holy book, that you would open it unto us, that we would understand and appreciate all that Christ hath done to redeem a people unto thee, our Heavenly Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Christ Risen According to the Scriptures. Christ Risen According to the Scriptures. In preparation for it, our deacon read for us this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Now, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the central point about which eternity revolves that it happened exactly according to the scriptures is very important. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, we read, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It is a sign to an evil and adulterous generation, which is a type of people. In scriptures, um, generation can mean two things. It can mean a 40-year period of time, approximately, or it can also mean a particular type of people. So it is in this context to a particular type of people that Jesus said he would leave this particular sign. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, we read, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Obviously, this is a very important sign. The Lord spoke of it again in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And it says, And he left them and departed. Uh, Keep in mind that the Lord gave them many signs that he was the Messiah in all the miracles that he did. But this one in particular, he says, is a sign to a... Um, evil and adulterous generation. So clearly it's important to God that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happen exactly as he said it would according to the scriptures, which of course it did. All the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning Christ were fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. He tells us that in Luke 24, 44. Every shadow Every type, every proverb, every allegory that pointed to it was fulfilled by Christ Jesus. It all happened according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, whoever superintends all things. Though there were no doubt three graves prepared to receive those crucified on Calvary that day, one of those graves would remain empty. Because God had ordained that Jesus' grave would be with the wicked, and as it was between the two thieves, but also that he would be with the rich 
in his death. That's Isaiah 53, 9. So his grave was with the wicked in so much he was crucified between two wicked thieves, but that it would be with the um, rich in his death. And so it was that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, boldly went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Just as it does today, it did then, money talks and his uh, position in society with his wealth gave Joseph of Arimathea access to uh, Pilate. Um, And so he went into the Roman, Roman governor to beg the body of Jesus. Scripture also tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jews. We read about that in John 19, 38. Um, But apparently, he was not afraid of the Romans. And so it's interesting how that we can be bold for Christ in one area or occasion in our lives and yet fearful in others. I mean, we see that in uh, the life of Elijah, how he can boldly slay all of the prophets of Baal and then yet run and hide from um, Jezebel for a period of time. So it is with all of us. Uh, Scripture tells us that though he was part of the Sanhedrin, says he was an honorable counselor, and that he did not consent to their condemnation of uh, Jesus. So undoubtedly a conflicting set of emotions in his heart regarding Christ Jesus. The transition from the old covenant around which the entirety of Jewish life and culture revolved to the grace of the new covenant will prove to be difficult for the strongest of the Jewish um, Christians. The fear of being cast out of the synagogue may have weighed heavily upon um, Joseph. The book of Galatians uh, shows us how both Peter and Barnabas got caught up in the hypocrisy of having the Gentiles behave like Jews, as though one might be made perfect through the flesh by observance of certain Jewish ordinances. So this was not something that was unique to Joseph, uh, not something unique to Peter or Barnabas. These are things that we struggle with as well. New Christians struggle with the process of sanctification where God separates us from the world and the world from us. It can be hurtful and disconcerting as we lose the approbation and affirmation of our worldly friends and family while moving closer to God. We are ever reminded to fear God in a reverential sense and not fear man, but yet it's something that we struggle with, so let us not judge another man's servant. We all struggle with this according to the grace given to us by God. So Joseph of Arimathea boldly goes to Pilate and gets permission to take the body of Jesus, which he is going to take and place in his own tomb, which happens to be in a garden and happens to be close to Golgotha, that the Sabbath might be observed. Obviously, this is all divinely convenient, obviously divinely orchestrated by God. Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, because he too obviously was afraid of the Jews, he joins Joseph Joseph here. Both men are now clearly identified with Jesus. And so I hope this is true for all of us as well. Some of us are slow in coming out perhaps as Christians, but in the end, clearly identified as a Christian. Clearly identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 5, it speaks about us being baptized into Jesus, baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection so that we would walk in newness newness of life. 
identified with and united with Christ as he went to the cross, the grave, and to glory. And so it is undoubtedly for love that these two Jewish men do something that all others would loathe to do on this particular day. On the very eve of eating the Passover meal, they touch a dead body, making themselves unclean and therefore prohibited from eating the Passover. In Numbers chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. The fourteenth day of the second month at even they shall keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it, according to all the ordinances of the Passover shall they keep it. Again, according to all the ordinances of the Passover shall they keep it. Now, you may recall from John chapter 18, verse 28, that the self-righteous officers of the high priests would not even go into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. The last thing that they would have done would have been to touch a dead body. And yet in the hands of Joseph and Nicodemus is Christ, our Passover, the antitype of the spotless Passover lamb to be slain on the 14th day of Nisan, according to all the ordinances of the Passover, which we just read in Numbers 9, 12. So which is it, and what are our two men to do? Is it a dead body, or is it the Passover lamb upon which all saints must partake? Well, of a truth, it is both and much more. It is the body of he who is both fully man and fully God. It is the body of he who is also the antitype of the red heifer, and the scarlet spoken of in Numbers chapter 19. The word scarlet there is a synonym for the word used in Psalm 22, um, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am, of, oh, I am no man but a worm. I am a worm and, but no man, the word worm there. Both of those are the worm, the scarlet are the same thing, and the red heifer are all types of Christ. Both of these articles are used to prepare the water of purification for sin. After the heifer and the scarlet with the hyssop and the cedar wood are all burnt, the ashes were to be taken out of the camp. Numbers chapter 19 tells us how to prepare the waters of purification and that they're to be laid up for store for purification. In verse 9 of Numbers 19, we read, And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for water of separation. It is a purification for sin. A man that is clean. Well, um, Joseph is described as a good man and a just man. <laughs> I would share with you that he is, by the virtue of the blood of Christ, a clean man. So he's to take it without the camp into a clean uh, place. Joseph of Arimathea obviously is an antitype of that man. He is taking the body of Jesus by whose blood the Israel of God is cleansed from their sin and placing it in a clean place, 
which is his own sepulcher in which never a man was lain. It is a clean place. Scripture says then he is to wash his clothes and he is unclean until the evening, after which he could then eat the Passover because the Passover technically was not eaten on the 14th. It was eaten on the 15th after the sun had gone down on the day of the 14th. So Nicodemus probably doesn't know it, but he's fulfilling Psalm 45, verse 8. In John 19, 39, it says, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Now these, by the way, are aromatic embalming agents. Uh, he was, uh, Jesus was buried according to the manner of the Jews. And so uh, Nicodemus brought these items. In Psalm 45, Verses 7 and 8, it says, Thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes. Obviously, Psalm 45, 7 and 8, there is speaking about Christ in, with reference to his burial in particular. So Joseph and Nicodemus are doing for love what God ordained before the foundation of the world and put in the scriptures 1,500 years earlier for the numbers account and 1,000 years prior for the psalm account. Is it not a wonder that we fret so much about life? God has placed these things in the scriptures thousands of years before they come to fruition. And yet we wonder whether or not he's really running the show here. Do we not marvel at the Hebrews in their wilderness sojourn who saw the mighty hand of God in their deliverance from Egypt via the ten plagues and the destruction of the uh, Egyptian army in the Red Sea? And yet, when they get to the wilderness, they complain that he brought them out there to die of thirst. And they were happier back eating from the flesh pots of Egypt. They complain and whine as though God, who delivered them with a very great deliverance, couldn't provide for them a table in the wilderness. And yet we, who have the whole body of scriptures before us, do the same thing. We worry about inflation and how we are going to get by, whether or not we're going to have our job next year, whether or not the grocery stores are going to be, uh, grocery store shelves are going to be, uh, have food for us. We worry about what's coming down the road politically as though God's hand isn't in it. Yet in Daniel chapter 4, in three different places, the Lord says that he rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will. So it doesn't matter how you think Joe Biden won the election. God says he places the basis of men upon the throne. Joe Biden is our president because God ordained it as such. In Proverbs 21.1, the Lord tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God is on the throne and ruling and reigning over everything. And so we have nothing to worry about. Of a truth, God is superintending all the affairs of all things, visible and invisible, everywhere, at all times, for our good. 
all affairs, everywhere, at all times for our good. We never have anything to fear nor worry about, ever. Every one of us is right where God wants us to be, experiencing whatever trials and tribulation he wants us to experience for our eternal good, individually and collectively. Again, for the eternal good of all the saints. The things that I suffer are for my benefit and for my profit and for yours too, just as yours are for mine. So Nicodemus and Joseph are working through the issues of preparing the body of Jesus for burial, fulfilling scripture in the process, touching a dead body by which they might be considered to be unclean outwardly, yet of a truth, as the true Israel of God, they have been made clean by the blood of Christ. Luke 23.50, I made reference to this earlier, Joseph is described as a good man and a just man, a description that only applies to a Christian by virtue of their union with God through Christ, obviously testifying of the cleansing effects of God's blood as it applies to all God's elect from the foundation of the world. Now, while all of this is taking place, Um, Our narrative tells us that ever quietly present in a conspicuous sort of way are the women. They are at the cross. They follow Joseph and Nicodemus to the sepulcher. And the scripture says that after Joseph and uh, Nicodemus have left, that they even are sitting over against the sepulcher. After the Sabbath day of the 15th, which is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, scripture says that they prepare spices and ointments, which they then bring to the sepulcher two days later after waiting for the Saturday Sabbath to pass. It is often understood that women in the scriptures represent the bride of Christ, which is the church. So it is in this context that we can appreciate that God has drawn them to his son. And we are not surprised that it is the women that the risen Christ first appears to. It is to the church that Christ appears, not to the world. While the crucifixion was public and there were hundreds of thousands of people present, and the Apostle Paul says when he's speaking to King Agrippa that this thing was not done in a corner, and indeed it was not done in a corner, it was a public crucifixion, we should appreciate that the resurrection was private. No one saw it. All four Gospels speak of the women coming to the tomb early while it was yet dark and finding it empty. And then when the Lord did appear, it was to Mary Magdalene first and then the others. In Acts chapter 10, verse 41, we read that the resurrected Christ Jesus appears, quote, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. God reveals himself to whomever he will. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, we read, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Christ reveals himself 
as the Almighty to whomever he will. He reveals himself unto babes. Now recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, uh, this verse here, that after he was risen, Jesus was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remaineth until this present, but some are fallen asleep. Now the point here is that the resurrected Jesus appeared to a large number of people at the same time, at the same time, creating an unimpeachable witness and testimony as to his resurrection. In the grand scope of things, it is not that many people in totality that he appeared to. It is, however, in the context of an unimpeachable witness. 500 people witnessed each other witnessing a resurrected Jesus. It is an unimpeachable witness. So getting back to my first point, it is extremely important that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened exactly as the Scripture said it would. For it is by them and the witness of the Holy Ghost that we know that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Word of God is true. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 and 19, If there is no resurrection, we are among men most miserable. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Christianity is the only belief system that has a resurrection of the dead, where people are raised from the dead with a glorified body to glory, enjoying eternal fellowship in the presence of God Almighty, united with him because of what he has done for them. If Christ be not raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection. We are false witnesses. Our faith is vain, and we are yet dead in our sins now and forever and have nothing to look forward to except eternal punishment and estrangement from God the Father because that is what the Bible teaches and so we are indeed most miserable. So the question I have now is what does the world believe? What does this present evil and adulterous generation believe? The world does not believe there was a resurrection. They believe that Jesus was some kind of an historical figure, a religious prophet of some kind, and died a martyr trying to overthrow a religious political system by teaching about love. They believe he was a radical in his teaching about love, and so he was killed by an establishment who felt threatened by him, as though if he were to appear on the scene today, he and his message would be received by our enlightened and recently woke culture that, quote, do love, embraces every preoccupation of man, even though they are perverse and an aberration unto God. So the evil and adulterous world did not receive the one sign Jesus said he would give it. They don't believe in the resurrection, and therefore... They must believe that Jesus was a liar and a fraud and ultimately a hypocrite for what liar and fraud can teach about love. So forget about all those other miracles that Jesus performed. There's no proof of those today. 
and ignore those big ash heaps of Sodom and Gomorrah that God said he would leave as an example to those that live ungodly, um, that we can't find his body and why that's because his disciples became at, uh, came at night and stole them away while he slept. So they can't find his body, and the story given is that because his disciples came at night and stole the body while they slept. And that's the story the chief priest concocted on behalf of the Roman soldiers, detailed under penalty of death to guard the tomb. Think about what happened to the soldiers that guarded Peter when he was in prison in Acts chapter 12 and how that ended for them. They were slain. So anyway, that's the story that the scriptures tell us is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, that the disciples came at night and stole the body away. So the world doesn't believe in a resurrection. Apparently, nobody wants to ask the question, if the guards were asleep, how do they know who stole the body away? That certainly would not stand up in a court of law anywhere. Whereas the tomb was nigh at hand, why don't we all walk over to it and take a look at what's inside? Given that the tomb was sealed by governing authorities and had a great stone over it, who's got time to steal a body under cover of darkness and leave the clothes behind neatly folded all the while it's under Roman guard as though the rolling of the stone wouldn't wake them up and they've got time to fold the clothes up? Who steals a body and leaves the clothes behind? Obviously, the story that Jesus' body was stolen is ridiculous. So, where is it? 2,000 years later, and it still can't be found, in spite of the fact that 500 people at the same time saw the body walking around. <laughs> Obviously, it was Jesus. Um, so, what does the world do? What does the world do? Well, if we can't disprove it, why not muddy the whole thing up? Jesus says, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why not teach that Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and we'll call that Good Friday so it'll stick in our memory, and that he rose from the dead on a Sunday? Even though it's the most important event that ever took place in the eternality of time, let's confuse the whole thing as a means to undermine the faith of and cast a cloud of doubt amongst Christians and the Christian faith. And I'd say that's been pretty effective. No one can account three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday, and so the veracity of Jesus' word and the Bible are brought into question. And so Christians pretend that they believe in a Friday to Sunday burial, but are ever questioning it because it doesn't comport with the witness of the Holy Ghost, which is ever the witness of the truth in their hearts and showing the veracity of Scripture to the Christian. It's mixing everything up in their hearts. It doesn't make sense. Friday to Sunday is not three days and three nights. No matter how you count it, whether you want to switch from a Jewish day to a Gregorian day, a Roman day, it doesn't matter. You can't get three days and three nights into it. Um, so I gave you all a copy of my book, The Calendar of the Crucifixion, and I'd recommend that you study it. In it, you will learn that according to the scriptures, Jesus, the antitype of the paschal lamb, rode down the Mount of Olives on the colt, the foal of an ass, entering the temple on Nisan the 10th. He was crucified on Nisan the 14th and rose from the dead three days and three nights later on Nisan 
the 17th. All according to Scripture. All according to Scripture. If you superimpose the seven-day week over those dates, you will find that Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives on a Saturday, which is a Sabbath day, and he was within a Sabbath day's journey. Acts chapter 1, 12 tells us that. It was a Sabbath day's journey from the Mount of Olives to uh, Jerusalem. So he rides down on Nisan the 10th. That's a Saturday. He was crucified on a Wednesday, Thursday being the high Sabbath day, as Thursday would have been the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is always a Sabbath day. Scripture refers to that as a high day. And he rose from the dead on Saturday, which is also a Sabbath day, a different Sabbath day. It's the seventh day Sabbath, all according to scriptures. Taken on Nisan the 10th, crucified on Nisan the 14th, resurrected on Nisan the 17th, all according to scripture. God is faithful and true. You can and should take his words here at face value and believe the sign he said he would give to an evil and adulterous generation. Of a truth, our faith is not in vain. Amongst all the world's religions, Christianity is the only one that has a Savior who is risen indeed. Only we who believe in Christ have this hope. And this we know. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus the Messiah was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Raised again for our justification. By the mercy of God, we have eternal fellowship and life with him through our Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead after three days and three nights, just like he said he would. Amen.